When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I try to just do business with people we like and people we trust. We said, hey, if we do that, we'll, the money will come. We'll be fine. So the point being there is even when you're doing like investment transactions, you've just got to be careful what roads you go down because there are plenty of people that will start down with an offer that's not really, it's not really Transact. playing good faith. <laughs> this can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and we stayed on the East Coast for this episode, ladies and gentlemen. We're down in this good old peach state, and I don't know if Jamie's actually in Atlanta, but he's in the Atlanta area, and we've got Jamie Davidson on with us today. And I'll tell you what, you guys better listen up. <laughs> He's built a massive business, been able to exit at a really high level and has just done a ton of good along the way. So, Jamie, with that, welcome in, man. Thanks for sharing a few moments with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jerome. It's great to great to be here. And it was, it was great to meet you just recently as well. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool to catch up with you at the Driven Mastermind. I know you're a faculty member there and, you know, I was sitting beside Jamie and he's just casual conversation. And I was like, who is this guy? And so then I invite him on the podcast after I hear that he had an exit. And then I go do the research and I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy's like a rock star, superstar. And he's really humble about it though, which I appreciate on a lot of levels, but we're going to dig in so folks can really get an understanding of what it takes to be successful. And so I want to start out by thanking you for your service. My father was in the military as an enlisted man. He was in the Marines first, then went into the Army. And I think it's always great to acknowledge soldiers when they've done duty for us. So I just want to thank you for your service to our country, first off. I appreciate that, Joe. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So one of my best friends in the world went to West Point. Jamie, you went to West Point. And then I feel like you were studying something super technical and went out into corporate America. And then you did the first exit of an entrepreneur that we identify, which is leaving corporate America behind and starting your own thing. But I don't want to just kind of skip over all the steps. Like, tell us 
about that journey through corporate because it wasn't like you were doing thirty or forty thousand dollars a year by the time you left corporate America behind. Yeah, that's appreciate the question. There is, yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, for I think a lot of the journey for people, at least my experience was, you know, I knew entrepreneurship was interesting, but primarily growing up and whether it's going to West Point or just really through high school and the college, which was like, hey, get a good education and then, you know, translate that into a good job. Even though I kind of have a family history in the military and I, you know, was interested in serving, I always kind of had my eye on a career, you know, for, you know, your, your life as most people do. And so kind of my mindset then was more about, you know, get this good education at West Point and I had this leadership experience in the military and then translate that into, you know, good corporate experience and jobs. And so, you know, that's kind of what I did, which is there's pros and cons of it. I mean, it's certainly, there's plenty of pros to it, but, uh, you know, there's some trade-offs. So yeah, I was just kind of climbing that corporate ladder and I won't go through every detail of my, of my corporate career, but, uh, you know, essentially I'd eventually risen up to become a, like a senior vice president in this company. I was in banking. I worked in the for-profit education space and got pretty senior there. And then some private equity guys came to me, some investment bankers, private equity came to me and said, you know, you could be a good candidate to run some companies, kind of small to mid-sized companies that these investors buy. And so uh, that kind of bridged me a little bit, the eye towards entrepreneurship. It's not what totally put me over it because I still was a employee, even as a CEO of a company or a COO, but I still wasn't, you know, an entrepreneur until, until later in my career. So that transition though, from like, like a senior vice president to C-suite, did you have to become a new person? Like, was there a switch that flipped or was there, like, did you get a peek behind the veil and understand some things that you didn't get when you were in some of the lower roles? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, one way I feel like I became a, through my career, I was becoming kind of a bigger, bigger fish in smaller ponds because I was you know, like military, of course, massive. And I was with a big, you know, whatever, $30 billion bank. And then, business, and so I, I was getting more senior roles and kind of like when I was in the half one was on, it was a couple hundred million, maybe a half a billion dollar business. And then the private equity was like a $50 million business I was in charge of. But to your point, it's interesting in one hand, because of those big companies, I felt like I was prepared, like if you're running a big division, in some cases as the CEO or the COO, originally the chief operating officer, the companies were smaller. The the division was, it was smaller, but you were, the responsibility was bigger because you're like, you're the guy in charge. But you know, it is a funny question. You bring it up because you think paired, but you know, in retrospect, you kind of screw it up. You kind of, you are kind of winging it. I think you kind of think you know how to go about it. But like in retrospect, you know, I think like, A, it's like anything in life, you got to experience it. So I didn't have a ton of experience in those roles until I got into them. And, you know, you kind of live and learn and, you know, you try to, do things well that, that, you know, are your strengths, but then, you know, there's just some things from inexperience you you have to have to go through enough times to get it right. Time in the seat is what I call it. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, and that's kind of the way it works. You never, I mean, it's like anything, you know, as we talk about the entrepreneurial stuff until you're in it, I mean, everyone's in it for the first time at some point. And so, you know, it's just the way, way it goes in those roles. And, you know, the stakes are higher because, you know, when you're, in those cases where you have like a board of directors and, you know, they're counting on you and, you know, your leadership to make the investment work, you know, those are, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure and intensity, which later on helps, you know, as you go into running your own business and things. So, you know, I could draw upon my, my experience through that, through that corporate journey. Did you, 
despise or dislike corporate? Is that why you made the shift or did you just see opportunity to make more money? Like what kind of drove you moving into what most people would consider riskier? Yeah. And that's, that's the way I viewed it too is because, so I was up in the Northeast. I'm from New York originally. And I had moved to Atlanta for one of these deals, for one of these private equity deals. And I was a, a chief operating officer and my next door neighbor, Jason, Jason's native Chinese here in the Atlanta area. And you know, he was he was selling basically cell phone cases out of his garage. And he was also an IT consultant. So he had a full-time gig that I think for working like through for Microsoft tools or stuff like that. So so he was actually the one, it's funny, he was he'd been in the US a long time, but we kind of became friends and I would teach him how to make a proper drink over there. We'd kind of hang out, but you know, he was he was getting more and more into the entrepreneurship side. So he was kind of trying to convince me of it. And, you know, kind of the point of your question, it was hard, it was harder for me to do it because married three, three boys, uh, making good money and a lot of that stuff's taken care of. So the idea of being an entrepreneur was like very attractive to me and exciting. And you kind of always think about it over the years, like, hey, I want to do this myself or I don't want to make money for other people. But the reality of it is, is exactly said, it's risky. And it's different, of course, when you're married with kids and you have obligations and house bills and everything else that's in a standard of living that they're used to, that it's hard to you know, say, hey, we're going to go do this thing and, and hopefully it'll work out. But if it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. So was your wife working outside the home? Uh, no, she's stayed. She worked early before, my, before we had our second kid, but yeah, so she's stay at home as well. So for you, it was all or nothing, right? It had to work or like when you were thinking about making this transition, it's like, this has to work, right? Yeah. And I had the chance to see some, I had some track record to see because the business had started a little bit next door with the cell phone cases. So I could see the potential of it. So it was easier to, wasn't guaranteed, but it, you know, it wasn't like we, we weren't starting with just an idea. There was a little bit of runway before I, before I, made the switch. Yeah. So much better than me. I walked out and I didn't have any clients. I didn't have any problems. Oh, really? I didn't have anything. Yeah. I went to zero and I was at zero for a year or maybe a little bit more. Oh, wow. While I was trying to figure out stuff, but yeah. So you, you started, did you guys go into partnership right off the bat or did like you start your own thing and then you figured it out and you combine, like how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. So it's more the latter. So initially there's him, there's another, eventually became another partner guy, Brad, also in Atlanta. He worked for Coca-Cola, again, also native Chinese. And and then I was still continuing my work initially here, but I was helping in terms of kind of some of the strategy and some of the things they weren't as good at initially here to get things going. And then about a year later, then I came in ready to, to jump in full time in terms of, you know, quitting the job and, and, you know, knowing that we could, we could build this to be, you know, something big. So, in that first year or in the first few months, did you have an income drop? Yes, I did have an income drop. Definitely. Income drop, yeah, for the first several years. How did everybody handle that? Or did you just supplement with savings? Like, how'd you navigate? Because the golden handcuffs is the reason why people don't do it. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things. One is, is it was reasonable. Like we had a confident, like the, even whether like the private equity deals that I was doing running the companies, it's like, Hey, you X base pay, you have X amount of potential bonus. And then there's, there's, you know, equity or stock options that eventually pay off. So I've had some of that experience as well too, with companies exiting. And so even though I was a smaller portion of those, 
So I had some, you know, I had some ability with that, some, some cash around that. And then, yeah, it's kind of like the, the deal is like, you need some basic amount to, that you need. But one of the, one of the approaches that we had running the business because we, because we saw the, the growth potential and we were experiencing it, which was that we called it kind of a crime against ourselves to, to pull money out for anything that we didn't have to. Because because we knew that money was so valuable in the in the business as much as possible, so you know every situation is not like that. But when you have that situation where where you know it's it's worthwhile, you, we try to push as much into the business as we could, and we tried not to take it out, even when we could have earlier. But you know if if we didn't need to, we didn't. So you're truly not take. Did you have a salary, or you guys just didn't take anything out? And you're just we had a, we did have a like a a salary initially here. At some point later on, we even took it down lower, and then could would take you know distributions and so forth when we when we needed it. Yeah, <laughs> I think people are kind of getting uncomfortable in their seat because it's like, wait, it's going the wrong way. But <laughs> yeah, there there's a upside to that, right? So you push the yeah. money back in and it grows. Yeah, because when you're actually you know running the business, I mean, you can control it. So some of it could be tax mitigation. Some of it can be you know where the business is. So it's not like we can't access the funds if we wanted to, but it's also like, so let's say, you know, we each put in, if you and I both put in $500,000 to start a business tomorrow, you know, so it's a million bucks we put in and then we both start taking a $200,000 salary out of that. Well, we just put money in with no tax advantage. And then we're just basically pulling back out, you know, 60% of our money or whatever the tax rate is, the 40% rate. So we're, so we don't really want to do that right? Because that money, it defeats the purpose a little bit of putting that in. So it's a little bit of that dynamic, you know? And so, so yeah, you've got it. That's the tricky part about starting businesses and why a lot of people, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to do it because there is that they get. But once like, just from a, a numbers financial standpoint, it doesn't take a lot of money because of the taxes it's to, to pull the money back out that, you know, is essentially your money that you've, you've put in there. I got it. I got it. And so did you have to buy in since they'd already started or were you able uh, just to use strategy to be a part? I know I had to buy in. I had to invest, invest in to it. Definitely. Yeah. And then they, you, you guys used that to buy more product and that was the value basically, right? You, you wanted to be able to buy more products so you could sell more or put more into marketing? Yeah, essentially. I mean, the, in the e-commerce space, Amazon space, definitely the, the inventory is the, is the, aspect of the business that requires, that is cash intensive and that you have to have, there's certainly funds around marketing like any business, but really the inventory is the big one you got to solve for and have. And part of the timing back then was easier too, because our margins were really good that we could self-fund our operation. We didn't have to get really creative. We could reinvest our profits back into the, into the business quickly. But as far as just investing in the business too, there was a definite approach of like, hey, we all need to have enough skin in the game you know, that we're all financially invested into this to be aligned as, as partners as well too. So that was a part of it there. But then, yeah, the business-wise inventory was the, was the biggest cash need of the business. Got it. And so this is the red pill moment, I call it. So the day you decided that you were going to leave and go full-time in the new business, like what was it? What, what was the catalyst? Or had you just picked a date at random and said, I'm out on this day? Like, give me that. Yeah. So we had like Jason, the partner, we had talked about it a bunch. Like he had tried to convince me a bunch and he's like, you got to do it. This is so, you know, it's so liberating. It's so great. And just back to what we said earlier, it was just hard to pull that trigger till 
you know, I had enough confidence that even though it wasn't gonna be as much money that I, I could, that it made sense to do it still. So we had, we kind of mapped it out a little bit, Jason and I, and it was pretty, it wasn't overly complex. You know, we didn't have like a bunch of crazy attorneys and plan, but it was kind of like back of the envelope of what, what it would look like and what it would require me to buy in with the business. And then from there, you know, it was probably about six months from the initial discussion till I actually made the decision to do it. You know, I, I saw the potential with it. I, the current one, I, the, part of the challenge with the, the deals I was doing was that they were, they would require me to probably move a lot. The investors always wanted me to move wherever the deal was. And so like, you know, it was Atlanta. One deal was in Chicago. One was going to be in Boston. It was like, I don't want to like move my family all the time. It was hard. I couldn't really control that. At ge- probably now you can do it better because like Kobe said, but the geography wise, there was a ton of pressure to move places that I didn't want to move to. And so honestly, that was a big one that, hey, even if initially it's not as much money we can control, like I can build that here in Atlanta. And and then just like him, neither of us really knew how much upside there would be with the business. But so then yeah, there was just excitement for it. So yeah, no, that was, there was that calculation, but part of it was because I knew the next deal I'd have to move somewhere. And I thought, hey, let's, let's do this. And worst case, I knew if the business didn't work out. I can, today I could still do that. I'd probably go back out to these private equity firms. They're hiring, you know, and be a hired gun. But it just, you know, after doing that for enough time, it just wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. It's old quick. Okay. So were there specific things that, like you said, six months out, you were getting ready to, you you used like, I want to do this. Was there any like strategic things you did in order to prepare so that you would have a softer landing outside of starting to like invest in the business? It's an interesting question because I really, you know, it's, it wasn't like overly strategic with it or about it. I mean, essentially just figuring out that, hey, I have enough, I have enough capital and cash that we can, that it won't negatively impact our lifestyle. And then from there, it was more like I felt confident that this, that I, that I trusted and liked, you know, the partners I was going to be with that I wanted to go into business with them. And so then there was just enthusiasm and excitement to do it. So, you know, if I had it, if I was doing it completely by myself, I probably would have, would have taken longer, probably would have had to build by myself on the side more. And then, you know, eventually made that decision and maybe I would not have done it. But in the sense that I had like, you know, potential partners and there was planning and the business was already, you know, growing. So it wasn't from zero. That made it that, you know, I just knew I had enough capital and, and I was excited to, to make the change. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it. Don't start at zero. <laughs> All the money going the wrong way. It's, it's not the best way to do it. So you guys build this thing up. Like how big do you get it before you sell the first piece or the, first, the whole first thing? I, I don't know how it's sold. Yeah. So the business kind of went in stages. So, you know, compared to most, and it, you know, most people can Amazon business or it's an e-com business of which 90% of the revenue is through Amazon. And part of the opportunity is back then, a lot of people didn't really know, you know, what selling on Amazon was. Is that a real business? Matter of fact, like investors, like private equity and the guys that would buy other businesses, I would even tell them about this business. And they would like, they did not care. It didn't matter how successful it was, you know, 10 million, 20 million. They were like, no, we don't are you know, like, they didn't even say, they just kind of nodded their head. Like, that sounds interesting and weird, but that's not something that they know because, you know, investors, they invest in things that they know and they've seen and there's a track record. And this stuff was just like born years later, the last couple of years, that's changed. And now people, there's a lot of investors in the space, but back then there was not. So as far as the the journey, so the business grew really fast early on. So it got to $5 million pretty quick within a year, within three years, it got 
close to 20 million. We did an acquisition of a company. We did an acquisition of another brand, which was about 5 million. So we added them. And then both those brands eventually grew to, uh, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but like both those brands became about 40 million eventually each. So that's why the, you know, the business became so big. So the business got to like 60, 50, uh, about 60 million. And we're talking like 2015-ish. And it kind of plateaued there for a few years. So it was good sales. The margins were were tighter, like different years, like anywhere between 15% down to, I think about 6% one year. But uh, so anyway, we can talk more about that. But essentially to your question, we, my partner, Jason, then moved him and his his wife and their their daughter over to China, where we had a small team. And we, and we actually kind of rebuilt the entire team over in China with about 200 employees and kept the team in Atlanta smaller with the warehouse. And and that's how we scaled the brand. Then we had a kind of an engine in place to scale the business to over to over 100 million in 2018. Wait, I, I just want to make sure I heard you right. You yeah. acquired a company that was doing similar revenue as you, and then you grew two companies. What was that? Like 8X from five to four? Yeah, those, those, we pretty much stayed in those same uh, eventually we sold other categories, but yeah, those two brands, they became two of the biggest brands in the Amazon space and in the cell phone space. And on Amazon, the two most competitive categories are cell phone accessories and uh, and supplements for, for different reasons. But the, the reason why the cell phone accessories, and actually I say cell phone accessories, initially the big product back then we sold to was, was the iPad was really big. So everyone bought these iPads that were expensive and everyone needed a case for their iPod and every school needed a case. So we did, we were really big in the iPad case initially, and then the iPhone became, you know, really prevalent as well too. And so those things do really well for e-commerce because they're, they're light, fairly small, and they're kind of expensive for what they are. So, and they're cheap. They're not that expensive to manufacture. So the math, you know, it's, it's one of those really good products early on. It's nowadays is much, you know, way more competitive than back then. But yeah, so there was like a lot of money to be made for for us and for other other competitors in the space that were that were focused on it early on. So what was the secret in growth? Because I mean, that's like hockey stick, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. We have one of the. It's funny. We I did a, a podcast say with my business partners now. And we we're talking about Amazon tools and softwares, and she was like, "What was it like back then when you had no tools and software within the Amazon space?" Which was true because the industry. The, the seller community on Amazon really didn't exist. There was no third-party tools. But one of the keys, that being said, one of the keys to us being successful at the way we did was the partner Jason in his, I mentioned before, he had a, a background in IT and the ability to set up a lot of systems and structures that were just custom-made, not within the Amazon platform, but just, so if you think about like a logistical platform and the reporting and all like the stuff that we kind of already had at big companies that you know we didn't have to build from scratch that did help us a lot that he was good at that because we were able to build like our logistics system you know having that in place like very few typical sellers you know had that in place so we were pretty sophisticated in terms of how we did it there was also like on the selling strategy world this I've talked about this before a little bit but everything was much more they call you know black hat and white hat so the black hat stuff was was super hardcore. We didn't really even talk about it that way. It was more just like, because Amazon was so far behind. It was just the way you, the amount of innovation or ways people came up to to make the algorithm work, it was like, now it's like so against the rules. But you know, we did a lot of like crazy stuff. Like we'd have 50 computers buying, you know, 
buying our product when we launch it and automate it on VPN and creating orders, like basically dummy fake orders. So you had all of this kind of gaming of the system at a high level going on. And frankly, so did our, so did our top competitors were doing it too. And so it was a bit of like a, an IT computer game as opposed to now it's like brand building, but back then it was not at all. Wow. And so getting, I guess the goal was to get on the first page because it's really just search and then buy, right? I mean, if it's exactly, SEO and steroids. Exactly. Yeah. And so now, I mean, over time it's become much more, you know, build a brand and build a community and build like none of that was really the game there. It was more like just get people to buy, get your product to rank on page one. The one thing that hasn't changed is that you got to have a good product. So that part does not change. So we we recognized that earlier that you know, we kind of viewed ourselves as a product development firm in the space. And then we did all of our kind of magic in terms of ranking the product and everything else. But we put a lot of emphasis on on getting the product really good and getting it differentiated because all the other stuff wouldn't have mattered. If the product sucked, then, you know, then it would have it been very short term. The reviews would kill you. <laughs> Yeah, we'll catch up with you just in any company, any business. So, so yeah, it was a good combination of that, the market opportunity and our know-how, how to rank things, and then also some, you know, systems and structure that we could actually scale and, you know, build things at a, at a scale that, you know, a lot of people maybe wouldn't be set up to do as quickly as we did. Now, M&A is one of my favorite things. You talked about buying the company. How'd you even know to buy a competitor or, I mean... And a competitor of similar size, it's not like you were just going in and picking up like a million dollar company. Like you were, you guys are big as we are. Like, come on. Yeah. So we were a little, actually, I, I probably, so we were a little bigger. I think they were at 5 million and we were at like coming up on 15 million at the time or something like that. So we were ahead of them, but it was a little d- dynamic because of the the Chinese relationship for, again, all native, native Chinese, but in the US, but with the community within the, Atlanta area amongst the Chinese, they knew each other a lot and communicate. So it was another Chinese native in the close by. Actually, we're all in the same gated neighborhood, actually. And that was doing the same thing. He was out there selling these things. And he's a young guy, he's early 20s. And I mean, people that understood, you know, this opportunity out there, they're not out there talking about it to people. So people didn't know what was going on, but it was, you know, it was kind of like if you knew, you knew. And so yeah, he was doing really well. He's just really young and he was also wasn't sure how much it was almost like too much success too quickly. You know, how much he more he really wanted to do of this. He almost got bored with it. And so he was he was up for us kind of acquiring the brand and and it was good it became like bigger than our main brand eventually. So yeah, that was it was just the opportunity and the the numbers worked so we could you know, the margins were good and so we could we could basically acquire that brand. But how would you did he just say, hey, I want out and I know you guys are in this space? Like, how does the deal like that come yeah, about? Yeah, so the again? deal was a little bit, it was kind of came in two parts. One is first he came aboard as a as a partner as well. Okay. And he ended up he ended up leaving and being out of the deal uh, about maybe 18 months after the deal. So part of it was initially we brought him in to it. And then and then eventually he so yeah, so he was part of the, you know, part of the upside of the entire company. But then eventually he got, he got bought out. Okay. So you guys go off, you're doing your thing, you're growing them. And then do you decide, hey, it's time to get out and cash out? Or does somebody approach you and say they want to buy? Yeah. So it was interesting because a couple of things were interesting because right now I do work in the 
investment banking space. I do with a company Northbound Group to help Amazon brands exit and do this type of stuff. And so it's a little cleaner now because you got, hey, you look at the financials, you make sure that there's no like black hat activity that's really gone on, or if there has, it needs to be discussed and worked out. So this business here, we had like grown it. You know, we didn't talk a lot about the details of the journey of the kind of the operations, but like basically we had this battle with Amazon where the business would get shut down at times for like oh, wow. know, 30 days at a time. Like, so one time right after Thanksgiving, it got shut down all the way to Christmas, which is like 30% of the sales. Yeah. It's like 30, at least. And now it's sometimes it's 40% of the entire year sales. And so it was a bit of the cost of doing business. So they would like whack you and then you get back because there was so much money at stake amongst the competitors in the space that it was like, and years later, Amazon would get you know more sophisticated and, and they could like shut you down no matter how big you were. But, but that being said, the point of me saying that is it made it a little bit messier in terms of looking at the the opportunity. So there was an aspect because the business wasn't that clean in terms of because of all the kind of the different ways you had to do to make things work. So that was a little bit tricky because it's not as, you know, every business can have, can be messy in different ways, but it was tricky because, you know, when someone's buying your business, they're, and they're going to pay a multiple, et cetera, is they're looking at their runway and whether, of course, that they can replicate and grow those things. And so if there's, you know, if you're doing something crazy to get your results, you know, it's not illegal, but not approved by the Amazon platform, it's trickier, you know, to, to make that work. So over time, you had to clean that up. We had to launch other brands, other categories, which we did. So we got into like fitness and pet supplies. We waited a long time before we did that, but we started building out new brands uh, and then running them kind of more brand focused ways so that the business could be more exitable, I guess <laughs> is, is the word. So so yeah, but to that point, there are different, but you never know who might be interested in your business. So it could be strategic buyers, like for us, like companies like Made in China. You think of like an Alibaba, like there's interesting people in the space that just may be interested in, in there. There's certainly other bigger competitors in the space that would be interested. And then there's just kind of traditional investors like uh, private equity that can be, you know, that are looking to to invest in it. And so they approach you or you approach them? How did... They, well, yeah. So there's two things we had. Basically, we leveraged an investment banking firm to. So for those that are, you know, investment banking firm, I kind of view it as like a, as like your realtor to sell your home, but you know, at a bigger scale. So brought them in. There was a lot of work done with like the entity structure, the auditing all the financials. So that was a pretty extensive process. We went through that almost for like two years in some ways to to get kind of that part right. And then, and then eventually an exit, you know, where, where I got out of the business and, and different, depending on what they wanted to do, I got out and we had one of the, the main partners, he actually stayed in as part of the exit, but, uh, but yeah, it was different for each of us. So everybody had basically their own package on the back. Side. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, I guess the longer you stay in, the more potential upside you get or more shares you get in the new thing. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's called that. Like if you want to get a second bite at the apple. They call it, you know, and you want to, and depends what you think of, you know, the person acquiring or, you know, if that's interesting to you, you know, you can do that. And, and, uh, but also just depends where you're at, you know, what your interest level is, what you're looking to do and everything. So did you actually get the check or did you get a wire? I got a, a wire. Yeah. When you opened the account, what was your reaction? Were you amazed? Were you like anticlimactic? Like, yeah, it wasn't. I guess, you know, it wasn't like, it was good. I mean, it was good. It was, 
I guess exciting from that perspective. I had been part of you know some exits, like I said, with the private equity side with exits. So you know, I have had some experience with it. So it wasn't like total shocking. And I also did have some perspective around with the money. It wasn't from you know, I had always for a while had provided you know from the corporate jobs done fairly well. So it was good. It was you know it was exciting to to do that. I was you know you're proud of the moment, but yeah, it wasn't you know it was more just planning on what what the plan was next and what where we were going from there. Was there anything that happened along the journey to exiting that you would have done differently? Like something that didn't go well? It's a good question. I think a lot of it is, you know, it, it, it's interesting, you know, in terms of the people that you're, you're interacting with that, you know, people play a big part. And so you've got to, you know, one of the lessons, actually partner Jason did at one point in the business before it got to hundred million, but it was like when it was kind of stagnant, 60 million, Jason was kind of bored with it and was like, I don't want to be a cell phone guy for the rest of my life and blah, blah, blah. And like, he had another idea. So he's like, Jamie, let's do a, and I got this idea for this biotech company. I'm like, all right, well, I don't really know anything about biotech, but so he's like, yeah, we've got this thing. It's this little uh, kind of like DNA, like a swab type thing. It's going to read DNA and tell you what food you shouldn't eat or not eat. And we're going to create this little kit. And so he's like, well, we're going to sell it. We're going to try to take this thing in China. We're going to raise a bunch of money and we could take this public in China, like in a year. It's like, Jamie, it's totally different in China you know, you can go really fast. And so I was like, okay, so we're actually was helping them on this, on this investment too, and tying back to our main thing. But uh, Jason, I think he was driving that one and he put in a million dollars of his own money. And someone said they were going to give 9 million or something. So at a hundred million dollar valuation and like within less than a month, he like lost a million bucks. Like it freaking like lit it on fire because he was kind of defrauded from, you know, this Chinese investor and he, of course, he felt stupid, upset. And then he was like, all right, from now on, first, then he became way more interested back in our little cell phone business again. And and second of all was that one of the mantras I still try to live by was like, for, and we talked a little about actually the driven mastermind. I didn't share at the point, but the end discussions around this a little bit, which is like, I try to just do business with people we like and people we trust. And if we do, if we do that, we said, hey, if we do that, we'll, the money will come. We'll be fine. So- the point being there is even when you're doing like investment transactions, you've just got to be careful what roads you go down because there are plenty of people that will start down with an offer that's not really, their intention isn't really to, you know, it's not really exactly. playing good faith. <laughs> yeah. There or they're looking to make like a crazy concession. They want you to make crazy concessions as you get into it. So you've got to protect yourself up front, you know, around the business. And, and so I'd say that's one you just come across people that it's a waste of your time because they're not really serious. The other Is one- Is a I've way seen, that you can test yeah. that? Like, do you ask for hard money down or make them pay for your fees yeah. if they don't close a transaction yeah, or so, something? Yeah. So part of it is, you know, depending, that's why it's helpful to have like an investment banking firm or have someone representing you guys through it because they can, it doesn't have to be a big fancy firm. It could be you know, just someone around it. One who has experience with the buyers so they know a little bit or they can help vet them for you. But there are things like, you know, they go under, you know, the deal goes under LOI, so letter of intent, that there is a period of time. But ideally, you'd like to have some track record of like, hey, when these guys go under LOI, they're like 90% of the time this deal is going to close, right? Versus, versus if you're just doing some deal on your own, it's pretty risky. Like, oh, we've got this strategic buyer. We've got this guy who wants to invest in my business. A lot of times, you know, it's a total crapshoot, you know, what if that will actually work work out versus... So, you know, like, again, it's like selling your home. Like, oh, if I could sell my home, you know, by myself and save the commission, yeah, you could, but you could also get screwed. You also might not get the best deal, you know. So 
I personally recommend a professional to help help you in some ways to help navigate it and bring all the potential buyers to the table so you can kind of you know figure out the best deal versus risking it if you're going kind of one-to-one. Use a professional. They usually get you more money than what they cost, if, at least if they're worth their weight, right? Yeah. I mean, you can do your homework on who you pick as that professional, but you know, I'd say worst case, you're probably going to do just as well financially you know, after their success fee. But there's a good odds are that you know, with the relationships and usually like, you know, the thing about exiting your business, there's a lot of things that you need to do well before, like, you know, a year or two years before running your business or before you want to sell it that, you know, again, if you understand those things and get some advice, it can make you a lot of money on your exit versus then if you're just showing up to the table, not realizing those things. Got it. And you were getting ready to give me a second one that you would have done differently, you know, turned you to run, um, turned you the other way. Oh yeah, so I'm trying to think. So the, yeah, the the one is around. Oh, the the other one, I guess, is not a di- something different. I guess it's more around the decision making whether you want to stay in or not. But I guess the, it relates to that is the terms of the deal. You want to be really careful because a lot of times when you're negotiating the exit, the buyer is going to want to create an earnout, right? So the earnout for the deal, and as you know this stuff well, but is and so similar to that same point, you just need to understand like. I almost treat that earnout almost expected value of zero because you really don't have control of it. So a lot of people I see get excited, like, oh, I got, you know, four million dollar payouts, life changing, but I also have, you know, a million and a half or two million coming in the earnout. And it's like, well, no, you're, you know, you really don't. You might, but so many times I've seen that not pan out. And so you've got to be wary of that. And so I, you know, it depends on what you're looking to get. The flip side, there could be something really exciting. You know, let's say you have a software company and you got some someone else that they take it from, they might 10x the value of your business in a few years and you might regret that you didn't keep a part of it. But just understand your kind of risk dynamic there. And, and you know, it's definitely risky to go on because I've just seen too many people. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about what the earnout is and everything else, just understand that that's uh, may never come, come to fruition. You actually were in a deal where that happened, right? Where they kept prolonging the exit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's true too. Yes. Yes. I have that still. I mean, one of the deals I was in was, uh, yeah, one of the private equity is like they were going to exit right before COVID and then took the deal off the table and then I got done. So like uh, that money, I can't access. There's no, you know, these aren't liquid investments. So I, I can't, you know, it's worth zero until it's worth something. But, but in the case of the earnout, it might just be worth, you know, zero. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So as you were going through this, did you have any like deal fatigue or did you get irritated and frustrated and just tired of dealing with it? Like, it's kind of this limbo situation, right? It's almost like I'm waiting for my wife to go in labor. Like, when's the baby coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, no, no, definitely it is a lot It's because you pick everything apart and feel like every question that's asked, it's like, 
the guys on the other side, it's like a negotiation for ongoing. They want to find ways to get a better price. So they want to lower. That's why I said, you know, for every, whether it's accounting or your Amazon accounts, if you have other brands running through the same account versus keeping them in separate accounts, if you have like things you're not selling, selling off as part of the deal, but they're not part, they're not in a separate entity, then the other side is going to use that against you. Like, yeah, well, that's going to cost us a couple hundred thousand dollars. So we need to do that. So you want to do all that before, you know, you, you want to take off as many things off the table for them to negotiate against you through the process because it, it does get wear you down. And, you know, we had been through it a little bit before too. So it didn't, it wasn't a deal killer for us, but, you know, and helping other people through it and it absolutely can exhaust people to the point that they're like, what was supposed to be an exciting moment that the wire is going to hit. They're just like, screw it. I'm so freaking done with this process, you know? Whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. There's, there's a lot of emotion to it, right? There's a lot of just, you know, it's, it can be exhausting. Yeah. So you said it's like, it could be emotional. I, I know most people think like you're, they're just riding on the rainbow and then they land at the pot of gold. Is that the way it actually works? Cause I mean, you've been through multiple exits at this point. Yeah. I mean, it definitely does not go like that in most cases. Sometimes there's kind of like, you know, perfect businesses. And it's like, I learned over time, I learned this from a private equity guy is the best person to sell your business to, which this wasn't our case, but is someone that has to have your business. Like they need your business. That's like the, that is like the, you know, the pot of the gold, the end of the rainbow where like, you know, a competitor or someone they need it because then it's like those deals go really, can go, I'm sure they can still be contentious, but they go, you know, tend to go really well and the valuation is crazy, but that that's rare, right? It tends to be more of a, a give and take through the process and depending on what the type of buyer and everything. So with that in mind, it's, uh, yeah, it can, it can be, it definitely can be emotional. It depends kind of how you approach business. And, and I think part of like going back with the military, you know, background for myself and, you know, which is like, you try not to get overly emotional in business and decision-making or as things get, the more pressure comes, the more calm you try to be. And I'm not always that way because I can definitely get frustrated and pissed off and, and have those moments. But in the kind of the heart of doing business and bigger deals and, you know, you, you try to, you know, kind of be, try to be calm, cool and collective as much as possible. But, but yeah, without, without that, you know, it can definitely be frustrating and, you know, you can have those, those emotional moments, but it, when it comes to actual negotiation, we don't want to let that, let that show across the other side too. Cause we try to, you know, it is a bit of a game of poker to some extent. I don't know. Sometimes I think people show it on the other side and while they're playing their little game, they're like, well, these guys might walk away. We might want to actually get our act together and come to the table. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, well, that is a version of poker too. It's just like, I mean, you can, depends what you're willing, you know, like I said, with any kind of negotiation, what you're willing to walk away from. In some ways, you know, the power of negotiation is usually they say the the, the party that that needs the deal the least wins, right? So it's like the you know the more you can act or see like you know in some cases they're like well if you know if they're not believing if the buyers aren't believing well your store they're like well no we you know we think you know COVID gave you guys a big growth blah 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 we don't think that's going to happen you might be like well but I have a good point maybe we should just keep the business and we're just going to run it and grow it and they're like no 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 we don't you know so you can kind of play that both sides but you know there you are in a stronger point with any kind of negotiation, the, the, if you don't have to do the deal, right? So if it's like, yeah, we could keep running it. So we're interested, you know, here's the reason we're interested. Whereas if you have to exit the deal, just like if you 
have no choice, but your home's going to become foreclosed upon, then you don't have, you know, leverage in the deal. So, so yeah, the more you can have it, the more, you know, and that's why a professional, you know, representing you is good because they're going to get you more buyer options because they call it the book. They put together your business in a, you know, a book with all the details and the work and it goes out to them. So that way, you know, if you're working with one partner to buy or one potential buyer and that falls through, you know, and is that going to crush your life? If so, then, you know, that's risky as well to just, just to, you know, to try to pull that off. Got it. So we found that people have existential crises after selling. I don't know if you had one or if you, some of the other people that you've helped exit have had them, but you know, that's usually signaled by what was this all for? Is this really it? Or what now? Do you have, do you find that to be something that's common when people exit? Yeah, it's like, I, I agree with that. It's common. I, I have like a little different experience on my end, but it is common to the extent going back to, I think what you said at the beginning, which is if people have a perspective and, and it's so common that, and it's understandable, like human that you think only oh, if I had that you know, if I have that big payday, if I have that, that that's going to then, you know, that's going to finally make me happy and solve my problems or it's going to change my life and I'm going to live life with a different level of happiness than what I had before. So that is definitely true. I've seen that for people like th they think it with, you know, I've helped a lot of people exit brands too. So they think, yeah, they, they're going to go, you know, travel with their family for the next few years. And then they realize like, hmm, you know, of course, yeah, we think about like professional athletes because they're tend to be young when they're retiring. And so there's two aspects of the one is it's just mentally, emotionally, it's, you know, maybe not all it's cracked up to be or they don't experience it. And then two is just the reality financially that sure you had a, pay, a payday, but there's always, you know, bigger paydays and there's people doing more. And so it's all like, there's always a bigger element. Like, Oh, you had a few million dollars or X millions. That's great. You know, there's people doing a hundred million dollar billion. Like, so, and then there's also what's your lifestyle. So if you increase your lifestyle, like what do you need to maintain that and everything else? So I do think there's kind of several things that could be working against you. You got to be careful of mentally, just realistically, financially, you know, if you go out and spend a bunch of money. And so, you know, my case has been a little different just because I was doing some deals beforehand. I was doing a deal. I actually, I used to enjoy like I kind of know already that I enjoy working. Like I enjoy building. I enjoy like, you know, we're at the mastermind. Like to me, that is fun. And so it's just as fun to me doing that as it is, you know, I don't, I'll go on vacations and stuff, but you know, to me, I, I enjoy the process and building. And so from that perspective, you know, I, I did kind of help because I already knew maybe because my family, my dad was a, an attorney, like he's 82, three, he just finally like, Kind of worked his whole life. So I never really had a mindset of, oh, I'm trying to get to a certain point and not work. I view it more as, you know, I want to be successful financially, but I want to keep, you know, playing the game, so to speak, because I, I do kind of in, enjoy it and see how good I can get at it and, and keep, you know, keep going. So I think that helped me a little bit not kind of have this dramatic shift, whether it's from the private equity deals or this deal or, or the next one. So there was no kind of, I don't know, champions remorse because i mean a lot of times when athletes hold up the trophy they're like ah oh, now what right yeah yeah i have experienced that a little bit at times but i i've known it for a little while so i feel like even before this last deal with the with the private equity ones and kind of realizing some of that because it's funny i had that even not financially but just from like a position standpoint like i always dreamed of becoming a ceo of like a company 
like, and I say like dream, like in my mind, it was like an ambitious goal I had because it was like reaching the top. And, and I did that and I was like, man, I'm a CEO, I got this board. And then I realized like, oh, I don't really give a crap about that. Like that doesn't really mean anything. Matter of fact, these are the reasons I don't like it. And so, so yeah, I've been through that a little bit and the deal, and I've been around enough people and whether it's, you say now masterminds, but just enough people that have, have been through this. I've kind of seen that story enough that, and I've seen people do it well, why it's like people that have made, you know, a lot bigger sums than, than I have that get at it and why they keep, you know, going after the next thing. And I think you know, we're kind of wired that way mentally that, hey, we want to keep growing and building. And it's, you know, it's like, we want to be in the game. Like we want to figure this stuff out and, and be part of it. And so, you know, I want to do a bigger deal the next time or figure out how to keep growing. So, so yeah, that's for me. It wasn't, I didn't have a huge drop off, but, but I was definitely aware of it and I've seen it with, you know, plenty of people out there. It is kind of a bit of a, you know, messes with your mind a little bit. So you've got to be careful. And again, sometimes just financially, you've got to be careful too, because let's say, you know, I know someone might have an exit for $4 million and they think, oh, it's like, I'm set. Well, then they realize, oh, taxes are this amount and your lifestyle, maybe your your spouse, whatever, you guys increase your lifestyle. And very quickly you realize like, oh, I'm right back to where I was, except I just have more expensive stuff. You know? It's funny you bring that up because I think a lot of people who have created a business that cash flows realize like they turn off the cash flow. Now they've got this lump sum. And it's like, well, I knew how much my cash flow was. I don't know how long the lump sum will last. Exactly. So yeah. Then they're trying to figure out, well, where can I put the cash flow unless they're buying a new business, which most people I don't think are there where they're going from I have a business to now I own a portfolio of businesses. You work with an investment company, so you know, that's commonplace to have a portfolio. Um, yep. but you know, that is the place that we ultimately think people should go. So did do you just do investments in like operating businesses or do you do stuff in like real estate or some of the other yeah, things? Yeah, done some there, real so. estate and rental properties you've got. And then some other, you know, I've always had some investments, like things like the stock market and then some other of these deals too, which can be more, you know, kind of riskier of like, uh, kind of like angel investing, you know, people that I know that, you know, I've got buddies from their West Point classmates or guys that are going off and launching companies. And so, you know, I'll see a lot of their kind of decks and proposals. So potential, some of those deals, we put money in and where, you know, there's not going to be, you know, it's more of like, Hey, it might 10 X in, five years or, you know, it might go to zero. So I've, I've done some of that as well. So we talked about brokers earlier and then know this didn't really impact you as much because you've been through the cycle. Is there, or was there somebody to help maybe your other partners or some of the few people that you've helped exit with the, I'll, I'll call it the transition. Cause like you're a big deal when like you're running a company. And then when you're out or you're folded into the new company and you're not the guy or the gal anymore, like you're not as important. So like what you spend the energy on every day just kind of evaporates. Like, do they just figure it out on their own or do they have somebody helping or were you guiding them since you'd seen it? That's a, it's an interesting point. Yeah, you bring it. We definitely didn't have anyone helping us around that, you know, and I don't bring this up to you. basically one of the partners, one of the partners passed away that we had too. So I didn't go into detail around that. So that was, that was like a shocking deal. And there was, and it was to the, the probably some of the mental complications of the business and the family and everything else was, was 
probably wore on him in ways that, you know, didn't realize or even aspect. So that was, that was a, a big occurrence that, that happened with one of the partners passing away. The other partner, Jason, I mean, to your point, I think naturally what we do is we just put ourselves into other businesses because you're right. Like there is this kind of, it's probably driven by ego a little bit like, Hey, you're running these, these bigger deals. Yeah, every person's different, but I'm like, you know, I'd like to see that, you know, like, Hey, you try to be humble and, and you don't need to be the center of attention. And I prefer not to be. So it's more about just finding the path of what's interesting. So like, Hey, we've, we're building a new company. We're building this. I've got a new partner, you know, so that to me is interesting. It's totally different in some ways. Yeah. Cause you might be few person team and you're, and you're doing that, but yeah, definitely didn't have any kind of help. I think both of us, I think just from our, you know, Jason is that like from our corporate, you know, it helps. And there's some people that are really young that do really well. And it's probably a little tougher because you haven't had as much lifelong experience. But I think for us, because it was a little bit of a longer path that we actually had the bigger business later on. So, but yeah, it's an interesting, interesting perspective. I mean, it does come up to you sometimes when you're like running something and you got to like do all these crazy details that used to have a team for. And now it's just, you know, there is nobody. So you you just got to do, but you just got to do what it takes. Humbling. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, which is good, which I think part of the deal for any of us, like, you know, you think like we're the masterminds and there's plenty of people with different big stories, but it's like, it just doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what you like. It doesn't matter that Perry Belcher did something amazing five years ago. It's like, what is, what is he doing right now? And so I think he under, understands that, or I know he understands that. So that's why like you're reinventing yourself and you're, and I do like the challenge of like learning and being relevant. I think of got big investors like Mark Cuban and stuff like that. I think they say the same thing. It's like, they want to know that they can be relevant and be in the game and, and, you know, try to compete and see how good we are to like with the next wave of things. Can we, can we, you know, do it or do we get, you know, lucky one time or are you actually good? The one hit wonder, the fluke. Yeah. Is it really? And so a couple of more questions here. Do you think it would have been valuable to have somebody, maybe not for you guys because you're, you're seasoned, but do you think it would be valuable for somebody who's going through their first or second exit? Not focused on how can we extract more value from the deal, but are you going to be okay on the other side of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, no doubt. I mean, it's it's interesting. Yeah, you brought that up because it's something most people probably don't think about as much. Uh, you probably take it for granted, right? And I think you you're more of an expert. You are an expert in the space relative to me, but you know there is there is emotional tolls that people go through. Even I mean, you see it. Even when you see things like, you know, suicides out there of, of not, not necessarily yeah. on exit, but just like, you know, Robin Williams, you see people, you always think like, wait, that's so surprising. That person, you know, that person's so successful. This person, you know, that's like the last person I would think. So not to say it's at that scale, cause it's, but, you know, I think that there's nothing, but it's just, you know, it's more than people think, you know, going around it. So I think it's interesting. I'd love to, yeah, you mind uh, What's your perspective around it? What have you seen? Because I know, I think you've got some expertise there, but I mean, I'd love even if to learn yeah. a little bit more while I'm listening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and from my perspective, there's a ton of people, right? You talked about all the bankers and so on who can help you figure out how to get more money out of your deal, right? Even if it's delaying it, even if it's not taking salary, even if it's more inventory. And I've heard you make recommendations on creating a community, having email lists and all this other stuff to make the company more valuable when they go to sell it instead of just doing the revenue from the brand. But there's a whole person on the other side of the company. And if you built it from zero or close to zero to it being a meaningful part of your identity, 
right? Because you do it every day, right? Then once that goes away, it's no different for me than a divorce or a death, right? And like, it's like, I got so much from this. And what I found is like with our private clients is like, if we don't have somewhere else to place that energy, because mm-hmm. you're so talented, you're so good at it, right? It's concentrated, it's like a laser and it's going in and you're doing whatever you need to do with it. And then it just gets fragmented and you create collateral damage as a result of it. And so you see a lot of high risk behavior, you see relationships getting blown up and we, I could keep going down the list of all these different things that end up being collateral damage as a result of the person not having a place to put that energy. And I don't think you find the place by walking on the trail in the woods or (laughs) traveling across Europe or backpacking through Thailand. I think there's a deliberate process that you need to take so that when you get to where you're going, you actually have a plan. And even if the plan isn't accurate, you're directionally correct. Yep. There's so, so many people who build things because they pay well. And not because it's truly a passion for them. And now you won the lottery. You should be able to do what you want to do. And Mm -hmm. I think the only true success is fulfillment. Like so many people are chasing financial freedom, but fulfillment is the real F that I think they should be chasing. At least that's what I see them actually find peace on. And so when they get there, it's like, oh man, well, what do I do now? And so now they got to go figure out how to find fulfillment. And that is an honest conversation. Like it is a, a conversation that requires vulnerability that most people are uncomfortable digging into. Yeah. I mean, I'd say a hundred percent, right? Cause it's like, you're, that's the business side. It's to be personal, family, emotional kids. It's that's like, that's the real conversation, right? Yeah. So there's no doubt in it. It, it can be so different at different times for people too. Right. So it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think it's, it's a big, you know, a big kind of potential void or risk that, that can happen. And so, you know, for each of us are different for me as like, at least, you know, I try to keep myself busy. They, you know, I've got three boys getting ready to go off to college and the wife, you know, the, the bills are big enough that it keeps me motivated to, to keep going at additional things too. So we're not just kicking back. So, uh, you know, it's and trying to make them understand the value of businesses. Cause it's like, or, of you know, you always want better for your kids than you had, but you want them you know, you don't want things to be given to them and you want them to have the right work ethic and tools. So, you know, it doesn't screw them up. The fact that, you know, you've had some success. The, you know, so you're, I know you said your dad was an engineer and an attorney, I think, but for you, I think you're still the first generation wealth creator. Like he like laid the foundation and then you took it to that new level of I'll call it grandiose, even though I suspect you don't live a grandiose lifestyle, but like, Mm -hmm. this is bigger than life. I couldn't see this when I was a kid type thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's accurate. Right. That's true too. Cause even though like, and I grew up in Syracuse, New York, and he was like a good, you know, small city attorney did pretty well in his space, but it wasn't like you said, it's just different levels of perspective and not, and even the world was different then. But like, we've said this before, like our business you know, this Amazon FBA model and there's other businesses that can do this stuff. We'd walk around our warehouse, go in. There's no other business in seven years that we could have built to like a global business and have this kind of scale. It's, it didn't exist when I was growing up. And, you know, there's just some uniqueness of the time that those opportunities exist right now too. So that's just part of it. I think for anyone about, it's like, we're in a different world now than, than most of us grew up. Uh, it doesn't make it easy to, to execute it or make it happen, but there's just opportunities that, yeah, yeah, it just wasn't part of the mindset, you know, earlier in life. 
And so when you get one of those FBA businesses to nine figures, does the multiple change? Because like I hear them trading at like three or four. Does it go up when you get to nine digits? Yeah, definitely. It goes up a lot. So there's not that many at that level. So basically, let's say eight figures. You know, if you're eight, you know, so $10 million or up, you're going to start getting a different multiple. And I mean, when all the money came in a couple of years ago from these aggregators, one of them, you know, Thrasio, they raised over a billion dollars and everyone, there was this run to invest because these guys were buying these businesses at 4X multiples and they were being valued at the aggregators at like 13 times money. So it was just like, it was like an arbitrage. So investors were just giving more money because they're saying at these levels, at this size of a business, we're at double digit multiples, but we can buy these things at at 4X multiples if they can run the business and actually grow them, which they kind of assumed was a given, but some of them found out oh, it's not so easy to run these these businesses. So then the math does not work if, but if- uh, it goes down. Yeah, if it goes out, which is what happened to a lot of them in the last year or two. So all suddenly they've changed some of the approach. But but yeah, to your point, you know, that's really the point. So at, at like a bigger thing, you can definitely have double digit multiples. Certainly, you know, if you're a 10, part of the reason is someone, you know, the buyers, if they can, an investor wants to like a private equity or an aggregator, if they could buy a, a $20 million biz, brand versus- you know, 10, $2 million brands, they'd much rather buy the one because all the due diligence, all the legal costs, everything, you just kill it, you know, one one shot, one kill, right? Versus having to go through 20 of these different things. So it's going to make it, you know, more attractive in more cases, the bigger the business is, the bigger the revenue is, you can you can command a, a bigger multiple. You're also bringing different investors into the space too, because, you know, if you're a $3 million brand, you know, private, that's too small for private equity. So they're not going to be interested, but you get, to a certain level, you're going to have private equity. You're going to have big, you know, big national brands that are interested. You're going to have strategic buyers. So you just have more players that would be interested in in that, you know, in that in that level. Got it. And so, is that multiple on EBITDA or is that multiple on top line? Because mostly mean, in the Amazon, mostly it's on EBITDA. Yeah, the multiple I'm talking about is just EBITDA. But and most time they're discussed. It's it's based off of based off the bottom line. It's kind of this balance of like the margins right now, typically the last couple of years, like in the Amazon space, simply been like, hey, if your margins that are 15% or higher, you know, you're pretty sellable as as long as the as long as the top line that there's growth going on, if 20% or higher is like definitely attractive. Right now, even the last year, some of the bigger guys they've been pulling back that they're not like a year ago, 15%, they definitely would be attracted now. You know, most of them are looking for 20% growth or 20% margins and also nice, you know, nice top line growth as well. Okay. So who's helping you with the new next phase of life? I know you're in a mastermind. Do you have coaches like help people understand like what it takes to play the game at this level? Yeah. And I think this is one of the things you kind of get from the, let's say the masterminds is you can, I like, so I'm in, a, in the Amazon space. I'm, you know, pretty well known. E-commerce. If I go to Amazon events, it's great. Uh, I may speak at the events. It's kind of like you know I'm a big fish in that pond, right? If I go to, which is fine, it's good, but I don't personally benefit as much from being at those spaces. It may be good for our business, depending on what our product is. So that's why you know thing like the driven aspect is great. That's why there's like a Wednesday call, and I try to like always be on the call and. You know, I do have a role to help people on e-commerce as part of that mastermind, but I'm like, you know, I want to give, not just take, but I'm like, I view it as like, it's a real opportunity to, I love listening and learning from people from other spaces and seeing what they're doing. That's why something like 
that mastermind, there's some others out there as well too, is is really interesting and valuable to me because you know I got into the Amazon space, e-com space. One of the strengths I thought I had and my partners had is that we could bring this outside experience to the space and then apply it to this Amazon world. Similarly, it's kind of how I view things like the mastermind. And it's not easy to connect with people like that unless you get into a room occasionally with people like that. Is I love taking that like total outside perspective. Like, you know, Jerome, what you do is like totally different than anything I do. So, and some of the other people in the room. So it's like, oh, this is interesting. And let's see where something makes sense and, and, or tools are applying, like the things that are talked about in those rooms. I know within the Amazon space or econ space, like very few people are, are doing that. And so that's, you know, that's why I plug in. And I find it like, it's like people that really like to read books. I mean, I find it really like mentally stimulating and, and to, you know, to go through those things and then try to apply it to, to our own business. Got it. So do you recommend mastermind, recommend masterminds and coaching for folks who are playing the game? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So what I find is, you know, the most successful people I know in the space are, they all, you know, are, are investing in themselves. And part of it is you got to get, you got to get in the room with the, with the people, you got to get access to the people to keep getting around it and get inspired to a different level. So, so yeah, highly recommend. I was reading your LinkedIn, like, about section and you say something along the lines of we anybody could say they're expert but we actually do this and you might have put numbers in there at some point as well you teach people how to sell on amazon mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about like what that program looks like so if people are interested they can plug in with you yeah sure yeah no i appreciate that's why linkedin i was like oh what do i have up in my linkedin it's probably been a while since i looked at it but yeah no we so it's funny, we were running the, the, our big business as we talked about through the podcast and around 2017, we saw like all these people like online talking about selling on Amazon and we were like, hmm, who are these guys? Because we know most of the players in the space. And then we realized, you know, it's just the nature of the online world. There's a lot of like really good online marketers that put stuff out there and, and it's hard to differentiate. We're like, we actually know this stuff. We have a big team. So we started doing it in 2017. It's also been great just in terms of not just about ourselves, but developing really good relationships with other top people in the industry. So we go to these events, we'll provide. So we've been coaching, consulting, and in some cases looking to potentially buy people's brands for the last five years. So we've helped over a thousand people in the space. And myself, a partner, Joey Roberts, and she had a, a million dollar seven figure exit with her brand. So yeah, we're just like, we're pretty really hands-on. We're like, hey, we're the real deal. And we we also tap in, we collaborate with all the other top people in the industry. So it's not about that, you know, that we're the gurus on the mountain. It's about like, and I would say like, you should find people that you like and you trust that you resonate with. And so that's, you know, that's different for everybody. But, you know, for those that resonate with kind of our approach, you know, we're not, we're, we're kind of straightforward and kind of really help people do the work that's taken. The people that fit that, they can uh, help out. But yeah, I'm happy to share any information around that. I did this on the David David Shans when I had had me on. It's the only other time I did. I actually gave my cell number for people to text me if they're like serious and interested. And people thought I was crazy, but it was it was fun. We had like some some really good people that that came aboard. So I'm happy to share that as well if people want to do that. Wow, that's generous of you. Okay, the final question, one that I, I have to ask because I think great people know great people. So who else should we have on this show? Who else do you know that's had an eight-figure exit plus that will come on and, and talk honestly and vulnerably about that process so that we can help more people be prepared as they go on that journey? Yeah, I'll give you a couple. And I'll, I'm just going to also, I, just so it's on the, the recording, I'll give you, I'll read off the cell phone number. You can put it in the notes as well too. 
I just ask, just people text me. I don't really pick up calls anyways, unless no, but my my cell number is 404-275-8643. And if you just text me that, hey, you heard me on the podcast. Again, people that are serious, we love to to help out. And so we'll connect and have a conversation to uh, to help people build and, and exit their brand. So, but in that spirit, so that's the simplest way. I'm on Instagram, everything else. Feel free to look me up there as well too. But yeah, so some top people, there's a guy, my buddy, David Cups has exited five brands. And now I think for $14 million. So they've done really well. I've helped him out along the way a few times. I know some guys like, I think, I don't know, you know, kind of where that guy, Manny Coates exited Helium 10 as a big software in the Amazon space. So he did a really big exit. The firm I helped with, they, it's public knowledge. So we actually represented part of that exit. And now he kept equity. So he's part of the next deal too. And that one's gone really well. So, so yeah, I definitely know a few people. I can put some more thought around some of the other people I've known that have exited and, and see if I can send them your way. Man, that would be awesome. <laughs> Jamie, this has been a great show, man. Thank you so much. It's really interesting to see kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum. When we talk to a person who did their first exit, like it's like, oh man, I wasn't prepared for it. And, and you're like a seasoned war veteran. You've been through <laughs> it. You've seen it. You know what to expect. You can help guide people and make sure that they're in a good place. And so I'm sure you've Definitely understand the transactional side, the softer side. I, I stay more concerned about the more we talk about. And you brought up Robin Williams, which is a tragedy. That pressure to perform just becomes crushing at times. So I, I really appreciate you you coming in and and giving us this perspective, man. It was it was great. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Jerome. It's I love what you're doing with the podcast here. So thanks for having me. For sure. To the listeners, if you want the sort of help with your eight figure exit that Jamie agrees would be helpful or would have loved to have, then we'd love to spend some time chatting with you. So get in touch with us and we will make sure that that exit is not a nightmare. You don't get stuck with the founder's exit paradox. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real. <laughs>